So to uh, our final guest uh, tonight, late one night in the summer of 1990, a teenage girl went out dancing with uh, her younger brother at the local snooker hall. She came home early and he hung around flirting and dancing. On the short walk back, he was hit by a car. In the days and weeks and months and years that followed, they were to learn that there are, in fact, fates worse than death. And there are things that do transcend it. He was Matty, and she is Kathy, and this is their story. She's here to share it tonight. Please welcome, with the last act of love, Kathy Rensenbrink. Okay, so can I take you to 1990? Will you come with me? Will you leave this really, really beautiful quite swanky environment with Manhattans and nicely dressed people and come with me to Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tell you what we've just been drinking, my brother and I. He had a pint of lager, I had a red witch. Did anybody, does anybody know what a red witch was? Yeah. Okay, Didn't know what it's, it was till I read your book. <laughs> it's cider, perno and blackcurrant. <laughs> nice, nice. It was, the, it was the height of sophistication I felt at the time. I was 17. I had, um, I had green and purple ribbons in my hair that I'd worn to a Wonder Stuff concert a couple of weeks before. I don't even know what Wonder Stuff is, oh. just say. Um, and my brother was wearing a white T-shirt that had the, the in big red letters. Um, and we spent a lot of time lying around on his bedroom floor uh, playing records and discussing our future lives, which we thought were going to be brilliant. So I'm going to read you a little bit now. So I've left him behind in this place called The Rainbow. It was about one o'clock in the morning when I got home from The Rainbow. The pub was dark, and we, and we live in our the pub that our parents own. The pub was dark, and my parents were in bed. I climbed the back stairs, walked past Matty's room and onto my own. I undressed, pulling the ribbons from my hair, looking around at the sage and lilac walls. I got into bed. What did I do? What did I think about before the events of that night shunted everything else out of the way? Maybe I listened to a mixtape or played a record on my record player, which was black with green and purple buttons. Matty had the same one, presents from our parents the previous Christmas. Did I read? It seems likely. I read everything from Jane Austen to Jilly Cooper. I'd recently discovered Julian Barnes at college, and I wanted to study French so that I could live in an attic in Paris and read Flaubert <laughs> in his original language. I loved the thought of myself as someone who read novels in French. Of course, back then, reading was still a pleasure and not a defence. This was the last night I wouldn't fear closing my eyes for what I might see, the last night I wasn't in terror of what might happen by the time I woke up. I was drifting off to sleep when I heard someone shouting outside in the car park. Nothing unusual about that. Customers often pitched up in the middle of the night, looking for their wallets or keys or wives. I opened my window to see what was going on. The man below didn't look mad or drunk. He was standing next to his car. The headlights were on and I could see a woman in the passenger seat. Is this where Matthew Minton lives? Yes, I'm his sister. You better come then, he's in trouble. Trouble. It was a worrying word, but a small word. I pulled on all the clothes I'd just taken off, and I felt a rush of adrenaline that was not unpleasant. No need to wake my parents. I could sort out whatever it was. Some prank, some schoolboy silliness. Nothing that couldn't be smoothed over by a sympathetic older sister. Matty would be grateful, I'd be a little bit cross with him, but then we'd have a laugh about it and maybe tell the parents, maybe not. 
I picked up my keys, grabbed my handbag, and flew down the back stairs out into the car park. The man started driving as soon as I climbed into the back seat. He told me that Matty had been knocked over by a driver who did not stop. I knew immediately that this was bigger than anything I could have imagined. I wished I'd woken my parents, but it was too late to change that now. When we pulled up in the road, I saw crowds of people in the headlights. They parted and I floated through them. I heard people say, that's his sister. Matty was lying in the road. He looked so long. His body was covered with coats. I knelt next to him, touched his forehead, stroked his cheek with the back of my fingers. His eyes were closed. There was no damage to his face. I couldn't see any blood. I felt for a pulse, found it, kept my fingers wrapped around his wrist so I could feel the evidence of his life. One of the girls he'd been with told me that a car had come out of nowhere. They'd been walking along, the three of them, Matty on the outside, and suddenly he wasn't there anymore. Then his body had crashed back onto the road in front of them, and the car had sped off into the distance. He gave me his jacket to wear, she said, through her tears. He gave it to me because I was cold. Sirens, flashing lights. When the ambulance arrived, I could tell from the demeanour of the men how serious it was. They scooped Matty up onto a stretcher and in through the back doors. You're his sister. Hop in, lass. They were so quick, so deft, one of them sliced through Matty's T-shirt with what looked like a set of shears. The red letters of the, the could no longer be made out as the whole T-shirt was soaked with blood. But I can't see any cuts, I said. Why is there so much blood? It's coming from the back of his head, lass, said the ambulance man. The man gave me little jobs to do. He showed me how to stick the pads onto Matty's chest, how to clip on the wires. The driver was on the radio. We've got a bad one here, he said. The other man explained that we'd go straight to Pontefract Hospital so Matty could be stabilised and assessed before being transferred somewhere bigger. Keep talking to him, love, he said. Keep him with us. I talked and talked. I was still talking when we arrived at Pontefract and he was wheeled away from me. I wanted to go with him, but they wouldn't let me. I need you to help me fill in some forms, love, said a nurse, putting an arm around me. Good luck, lass, said the ambulance man. I sat in an office. I told the nurse that Matthew Peter Minton was 16 and lived at the Bell and Crown in Snaith. I gave her the names of my parents as his next of kin. I have to tell them, I said. The nurse let me use their office phone. I picked up the chunky receiver and dialed the number, stopping when there was still one digit to go. I thought how my parents would be surprised to hear me on the phone when they thought I was in my bedroom across the corridor. I thought that they only had a few seconds left of seeping in ignorance of what had happened to Matty. I couldn't leave it any longer, so I dialed the last number in nine and imagined the shattering of the silence in their bedroom. I'm at Pontefract Hospital with Matty, I said. He was knocked over. They say it's very serious. I went to the entrance of A&E to wait for them to arrive. A group of men who'd been in a fight were kicking off because they'd been hanging around for a long time and a nurse got cross with them. This young lass's brother has been knocked down and that's why we don't have any time for you, she said. They were instantly well behaved. One of them brought me a cup of tea from the machine and they gathered round me their big bloody faces full of kindness and concern. My composure vanished the moment my parents appeared. We sat on the bolted down plastic seats and I sobbed into my mother's shoulder while my father wrapped his arms around her. After a few minutes, we were taken to see Matty. He was lying on a bed with his eyes closed, a collar around his neck's neck and an oxygen mask over his face. There were smears of dried blood on his upper chest and face, but he looked reassuringly normal. 
He's a big lad, said Dad. He'll get over a knock like this. The doctor told us Matty had a serious head injury and was being transferred to Leeds General Infirmary. We followed the ambulance in the car. He was whisked away as soon as we got to Leeds and we were shown to a little room with a table and chairs, a kettle and an ashtray and we drank tea for hours and hours. I noticed a Guinness stain on the bottom edge of my cream shirt, knew that it would have happened as I'd leant over the pump at work earlier and I thought how much the world had changed in the lifetime of that little stain. I smoked. I'd never smoked in front of my parents before but now that little deceit belonged to another universe. There was a smear of blood on my handbag. It was a big brown patent leather old lady bag that I'd found in a charity shop. I called it Gladys. How stupid, I thought, to give a handbag a name. How childish. I'll never call it Gladys again. And then I looked down to see Matty's blood on my hands. I didn't want to watch them. I'd been Lady Macbeth in our school play. I thought of her, unable to wash the phantom blood from her hands. If Matty dies, I thought, I'll never wash my hands again. We were taken to another room, the family room, in intensive care, and the surgeon told us that he'd removed a clot from Matty's brain and a piece of his skull to allow for swelling. It was too early to say if the operation had been successful or what the future might hold for him. I've saved your son's life, Mr Minton, the surgeon said. We don't know yet whether that was the right thing to do. Will he be able to walk, I asked. The surgeon looked at me with weary eyes. We don't know anything at this point. He told us Matty would be purposefully sedated for at least 48 hours. He needed to rest. They didn't want him waking up yet. We could see him shortly. Finally, a nurse took us down to his bed at the bottom end of the intensive care unit. His head and arms were swathed in white bandages. His chest was bare and there were orange stains on his skin, which the nurse told us was iodine from the operation. I watched his chest rise and fall. I watched the monitor showing the beat of his heart. 48 hours, I thought, a full two days to endure this uncertainty of whether he will live or die. My only fear at this point was that he would die. I was used to the notion that young men can die tragically and suddenly. I'd even had a dream the week before that Matty had died in a motorbike accident. But I'd never heard the expression head injury. I had no concept of brain damage. I only saw things in binary terms. I just needed Matty to be alive. The hours inched into days. We sat and watched Matty breathing. The nurses told us to talk to him. They said he must have been very physically fit to have survived the accident. He was, we said. We told them about all the trophies for running and football, about the way he could lift himself onto the roof terrace at the back of the pub just by pulling himself up with his hands, how he would then walk across the roof and through the patio door of our upstairs kitchen, giving anyone who was in there a fright. Surely someone this fit and strong couldn't die. Surely someone who was loved this much couldn't die. I slept at the hospital on the Monday night. I sat beside Matty until tiredness overwhelmed me. And then, on the way to the room I'd been assigned, I found the chapel. I knelt and put my hands together. I was an unbaptized atheist, but I'd been to the Catholic school in our village, where I had read at Mass and won the school RE prize. I knew all the prayers, and the God that I didn't believe in was kind. I said the Our Father, Hail Mary. I asked for my sins to be forgiven. I asked that Mary, Mother of God, prayed for us now and at the hour of our death. I said the Hail Mary again in French. I'd learnt it on an exchange trip with school and I thought it sounded very beautiful. Je vous salue, Marie, pleine de grâce. I tried to make up my own prayers. If you were there, if you exist, if someone can listen to me. 
I did my best and then I went off to find the tiny white room and fell asleep on the narrow cot-like bed. In the morning, I woke up thinking it had all been a dream. I stretched and smiled and gloried in the safe warmth. It was a dream, I thought, just a dream. And then I sensed something unfamiliar about my surroundings, scratchiness against my chin from the woolen blanket, not my own soft duvet. I opened my eyes. These were not my walls, no sage and lilac, only the unbroken white of the relative's overnight room. No dream, no respite. I got dressed and hurried back to intensive care. Today might be the day, I thought. If the scan shows the doctors what they want to see, today might be the day they stop sedating Matty. Today might be the day that he wakes up. I had not yet learned to be thankful for the absence of nightmares. Thank you. Um, I uh, wanted to start by asking you um, about the form that you chose because it reads like a novel. Um, and I've had a, a, a similar reactions from people where they've come to me and said, oh, I, lo I love your novel, and I, and I don't correct <laughs> them and tell them actually it's true. Yeah. It happened. Um, and I wondered why you chose to expose yourself and, and your family and your friends by doing it as a memoir rather than giving yourself the protection of a novel. That's such a good question. Well, for years, well, I mean, for a start, I didn't want to write about it at all. So I wanted to write novels about other things. But then the furthest I ever got was chapter seven, and then this story would kind of rampage into the pages and take the rest of the novel over. And then I did try to make it a novel, because I don't think, I really, I don't, I am, I mean, I like reading made-up stuff. You know, I do completely think of myself as a fiction, I've got a mind for fiction. But I think one of the things about the, particular thing that happened to my brother and this cruel and unusual nature and it's drawn out drawed outness was I just actually I don't think you would want to read that in a novel I mm. think it took too long and I don't think that you know novels need certain rules and you need a certain structure and you need momentum and I d I could never find a way in which I thought you could effectively put that into a novel without kind of betraying the truth too much I did I did think if I was going to do it I really should try to tell the truth as much as I could about how it was. After my lovely editor, Francesca, who's over there, after Francesca bought the book, and I read a couple of really good novels, and I read um, Family Life by Akhil Sharma, mm. which is a, a not dissimilar thing that happened to him, he put in a novel, and I read All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taves, both fictionalised accounts of real things. And because, again, suddenly it seemed very real that this book was going to go out into the world and with all the problems that that then entails. And I did spend about two weeks thinking, oh, my God, could I rewrite it as a novel? Would yes. that be OK? Yeah. But I think, I'm, I'm glad I didn't. Um, what, what does it mean for you to tell the truth and how did the truth change as you were telling it? Well, the, again, I didn't really want to tell it at all. The problem was it wouldn't leave, it sort of wouldn't leave me alone. I didn't really want to think about it. And I really worry, again, I couldn't, like, I did think who would ever want to read this. And certainly all the first bits of writing were, I mean, they were just slabs of pain, really. Mm. But something magical did happen as I wrote it. The, the very act of writing seemed to dislodge everything that I thought I thought. And then, therefore, I did find I felt about it completely differently. And I found out new things as well. Like what? Well... 
say, for example, I feel really guilty about, I felt really guilty about lots of stuff, but by forcing myself to look at it, I kind of... Like, what did you feel guilty about? Um, well, so eventually... So my brother lived in this awful, very, very brain-damaged state for eight years, and then we uh, went to the courts to end his life. And I knew that... I knew that was the right thing to do, but it's a profoundly difficult thing to do, and I had to write an affidavit to say that I wanted that to happen, which I found very difficult to do, and I still feel very guilty about, and then I still feel very guilty, still felt, still do feel a bit, but it's less, still felt very guilty about the fact that his death then took 13 days, because because that's the only way it can be done. They withdraw the feeding tube, because legally, of course, that, that's seen as withdrawing an intervention rather than actively doing something, which, again, I think is wrong and the law should be changed. But I felt terrible about that. But then I found out all this stuff because I found, I, found I found other people. I realised it was much less actually about me and my family than I thought it was, and we were actually just caught in the crossfire of this awful social situation, which is that now we can keep people alive when we really shouldn't be able to, mm. and, and then the collateral damage to other people that's caused by that. So that made me feel entirely different. And one thing a friend of mine said to me, she said, imagine what it would have been like for you if you'd had someone like you. And I still find that really moving because the point for me is I had nothing to read mm. and I process the world through books. Yeah. You know, that's the only way I work. So there was nothing to read about it. There wasn't anything. Nobody really knows about this. Mm. And again, you can see why, because it's incredibly difficult to explain. Hence, I think why it doesn't, need a whole book. That's why telling people about it is so awful, because actually it's really difficult, it's difficult to explain. Well, you kind of, in the book you create, that's brilliant and actually quite funny spreadsheet <laughs> where you talk about... I'm glad the, you think it's funny. But it is funny. Um, um, it's a spreadsheet which is about um, how to deal with people when they meet you about, you know, asking you whether or not you have siblings. Mm -hmm. And you go through the, can we go through the, some of the various responses that, that you would have depending on the person? Yeah, so it's what you do, so it's when people, met, it's small talk really, isn't it? And what do you do when the answer to your small talk are awful. <laughs> so, I, you know, I'd gone to, I'd gone away to university. So in my village, basically, I everybody knew who I was. I was the girl from the Bell and Crown. I then became the sister of Coma Boy. Everybody knew who I was. I went away to university a, a year later, and sort of got to university. And suddenly, everyone, you probably remember, if you went to university, have you got any brothers and sisters? Is like right up there as a question. Um, and it's just dreadful because, of course, if you say no, which is quite simple, it's, well, apart from anything else, I mean, it is a lie. So you do feel dreadful in this whole sort of biblical denying your God way. And then, of course, it's also, you feel, I mean, again, you feel awful to your family and your dear, lovely, suspended in life or death brother. But equally, it's a big lie that then sits between you and the person. Because at some point, if you're going to know that person, you're going to have to come clean. And I had to do that loads of times. Oh, yeah, you know that thing I said about um, being an only child? Well, it's sort of a bit more complex, complicated than that, you know. Um, but if, equally, if I said, if I said, um, Yes, I do. He's in a persistent vegetative state at the moment. I mean, that was just awful because then people would ask me questions. I have to explain what it meant, and it was really depressing. And quite often, people that would ask me would be the parents of the of my fellow students. Right. 
And in a funny kind of way, I think probably my fellow students absorbed it a bit better because you kind of do at that age, don't you? Slightly anything goes. But I think with the parents, I could sort of slightly see in their eyes thinking, what on earth's going on here, you know? Because I think I was already a bit unusual because I, I always think this is funny. I only knew I was common when I went to university. <laughs> <laughs> I love that moment. It's so great. It's the first thing you learned. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I grown up, I'd grown up in Yorkshire where, um, I mean, my family was, well, again, we weren't, my dad was covered in tattoos and he was Irish and he was illiterate until he was 30 but we had quite a lot of money because he earned, he earned quite a lot of money doing really difficult and dangerous dirty jobs and my mum went to work in a suit which was extremely when she went to work in a suit but wasn't a teacher which was really really unusual but we, we you know we went to the theatre we had two cars there were loads of books in the house um so every so actually I spent most and I and I sounded posh you know because I because I was born in Cornwall and the Irish father and moved around a bit so I spent most of my up till going to university I spent pretty much my whole life trying not to be bullied for being too posh and then I got to university and realized <laughs> I was really common <laughs> so with these nice so with the parents of these nice middle class girls that I was sharing a flat with you know it's it's kind of they were kind of you know trying to oh, what are you reading and I'd be trying to give some sort of appropriate response to that and then they'd say, oh, do you have any brothers and sisters? You know, pretty much still trying to contextualise me as, as you do. And then I'd come out with all of this and I could just see them thinking, okay. <laughs> <laughs> lots, of, as I got, lots of them went on to be extremely kind to me and actually gave me my first sort of taste of like proper posh life. <laughs> Let, let's talk about education and books because it's, 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 uh, there's a parallel in your memoir and my memoir with, with education and stories mm -hmm. being a way out and a way also of mediating your experience mm -hmm. in the world. And you said something interesting at the start about um, this was the last point in your life before the accident where, where reading wasn't yet a defence. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, I think that, I mean, the, and the great thing about being finding out I was posh at university, I mean, I didn't care equally because I'd read loads of novels about other people going to university. Mm. And so I hadn't quite realised that I was one of them. You yeah. know? But it's just kind of, oh, this is OK, because this is actually Brideshead Revisited, or this is Jill by Philip Larkin, or actually it's Anne of the Island, you know, the Anne of Green Gables story. And then I knew where I was. So I knew the only thing that you should do is pretend to be other than you are that's the mm. only sin mm. and I think that is I mean I, as I and I think lots of readers do this I completely and not always very wisely absolutely define my life by what I read and I think books are true which is again it's, it's not very sensible I wouldn't necessarily advise it but probably for all of yeah, you depending. it's all a bit too late um, <laughs> so it's just kind of that I think, and I think that's one of the problems with, because books have a narrative structure that I always look for in life, and I always feel a little bit sort of distressed yeah, that it's the not there. The narrative of what happened to you and your family was not, was not, not the narrative arc of, of, of a novel, and certainly at, at the ending, and certainly in terms of the resolution. But just to go back to reading for a mm. minute, I was thinking more about the role of reading in your life. Reading was something that you enjoyed. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was a pleasure for you, and then it became a defence, it became a, pl a place that you retreated to. Yes, and I don't think it... I mean, it'd probably been like that a little bit before. So, for example, if I were... I wasn't always particularly happy at school, say, and then reading, again, reading is just enabled me to be in a different place. And I think have friends as well. Reading is a really good way of delivering friends if you're a slightly odd kid. Um, so, but then what it actually became was almost like an anaesthetic. And I still use, I mean, I still do use reading like that. And it's funny that you mentioned Georgette Hare, because I definitely, I mean, I'd use Georgette Hare for mental flu or whatever the, yeah. you know, I just got, like fairly compulsively reread. You could just check into her world and That's right, not yeah. think about anything You know, else. Agatha Christie, you know, rereading familiar text, really, as it's, it's kind of comfort. 
It's, I mean, and as, as things go, it's not a dangerous way to, cause, no, you know, there are other yeah. things that are worse to do <laughs> yeah. when, you're in, when you're, when you're in, yeah, when you're in extremists. And then, of course, the problem that I had for loads of years, and still sometimes, still sometimes a bit, but I've got much better at it, was that I just couldn't, for many, many, many years, I could not turn the light off and wait for sleep to happen to me. I, like, that was just an impossibility. So I had to read... So I just had to read until I would go to sleep on the book. Um, or, you know, the book would clonk onto my head if it was heavy. And that was just the way... And I would keep the light on all night. So if I woke up, again, I'd just be straight back into the book. I just wouldn't, you know, just so I wouldn't have to think, think about, about what around. was in my head. Um, you're going to get asked this all the time. Um, but let me start by asking it first of you. Um, what your family think about, about what you've done and how an effort all you shared it with them when you were doing it yeah all the time so they'd um i mean i've the only thing that my parents are really worried about is they're worried about my well-being and i still think they are very very pleased and quite amazed that i have actually managed to finish the book about it and seem to be feeling better because i think they i think their view was just they they just they just want me to be well and mm, i think there's a whole thing good. about there's a whole terrible thing that happens in families when one sibling is sort of destroyed and then the other sibling is affected by that. And the parents just desperately want that sibling to be okay. But as the surviving sibling, obviously, there's a whole set of pressures that come with that. So they just wanted me to be happy, which is, we just want you to be happy. Okay, then I'll get on with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but no, I think they're very delighted. How it, And my dad is particularly thrilled because as... Um, because he couldn't read and write until he was 30. And as a result of that, I think he has a... Was that something that was talked about in your family? Oh, yes, very him? much yeah. so. Yeah, very... It was, it was sort of always known. He wasn't, it wasn't like a secret at uh -huh. all. And again, because when you're a kid, what you've got is what's normal, wasn't yeah. it? So I yeah. just thought that was quite a normal thing. I didn't, I, I didn't find that particularly surprising. Well, sadly, it isn't not normal, but it is much more widespread than, than people think. I mean, well, it is, yeah. But of course, most... Because I, I do a bit of literacy work, and as someone I said to me in a prison, which I thought was brilliant, I was talking about my dad... Um, and a bit like Ryan was saying about when he tells people he's a survivor of violence, they feel that, you know, so I started talking about my dad in my literacy work just because it makes people feel more relaxed from, about w with me. I'm mm. no longer like the posh lady arrived from the ivory tower to try and throw books at them. Mm. They sort of get it. <laughs> and this guy in a prison said to me, he said, it's he said, thanks for telling us about your dad. He said, it's amazing to me that someone that sounds a bit like me could have a daughter who grows up to be someone like you. Oh. But and then, and then that's just and that just blew my mind. Cause I thought, what does someone like you even mean? And yeah. how what I you know there was so much sort of in that to unpick. But but of course it was just my reality. But again, it is true. Most people, most most I mean most people with illiterate parents do have a harder life journey. But of course, my mum was very educated, so I had a very unusual thing of having mm. one hyperliterate uh, parent and then. And my dad's a great storyteller, you know, so he's actually the, although he's, <laughs> and he still, he reads a lot now, but he still struggles to write. So he would write like a shopping list, but he would, he jumbles up upper and lowercase letters and he can't really write. But he's the novelist in the family. He's the one with that sort of creative imagination, I think. And he's, an, he, and he's a great storyteller. And um, so he's, but because I think, particularly because of that, he's, He's always been inordinately proud of anything I do that, that kind of ends up in print. Yeah. I think it's a real thing for anybody that hasn't been. It's a bit like sort of like, 
Yeah. They've yeah. put you in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> I know, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. do that now. Yeah. <laughs> that happens. Yeah. The, the book is, um, I mean, obviously that the reading that you gave was very intense and the book is very intense and... Um, but it's not miserable. You're not a miserable person, mm. and it's not it's not mislit. And I know that in your kind of role at the bookseller, you will see that as a genre, and you know, as a reader, you'll come across it all the time. So, you know, how how did you kind of tread that 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 line, and what and what 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 do you think about it, and the kind of expectations of it as a as a genre? How have you, and how have you avoided it? Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? Quite a lot of people say to me, actually, um, people that have read and and think my book's great, say, like, oh, I wouldn't normally read that sort of book. <laughs> so, like, well, it's not like I wanted to live that sort of book. No, yeah. um, so I think there's something really interesting there that we get trapped and stuck in these stories that we don't want to be ours. Mm. Um, and I don't know, I'm still sort of figuring it all out. I mean, at one point, I, I, I had this really strong feeling that I had to try to write some of this out of me. But it did—it just felt like it was my millstone, you know, my lump of indigestible misery. So for ages, I thought it would never go anywhere, and I wouldn't ever show anyone, because I just thought it would be too miserable. But something about the act of writing it dislodged words and meaning, and then it kind of—and I think the presence of the reader was so important because I don't think I would have actually had the stamina to sit in front of it mm. if the draw had been the ultimate destination. Mm. So I think the way that it all aligned. It kind of became perfect. And then I think once, you know, once I got an agent and then an editor, people mm. who believed in me and were putting effort into me, because, I mean, you might not all know this, but agents only get money if they sell something for yeah, you. Yeah. And I had this real sense with my amazing agent who, was, who had agreed to represent me on 10,000 miserable words that I was unable to talk about. You know, I just sat in a cafe in Soho and sobbed at her. Right. Um, I really wanted... A, I by. Somehow by having, but I think as well that was kind of that was what was going on. I sort of knew I had to get allies mm. to to be able to do it, yeah. and I don't think I would have. And I think at every stage I got the right amount of kind of sort of supportive pressure that I didn't. I didn't want to let other people down. I never felt anybody was whipping me or demanding the words, but it was a lot easier to to do it if I felt there was a purpose. Whereas if I felt that it was just oh let's just write this misery and then put it in a drawer, I'm I don't think I'd have had but the. It isn't miserable. I mean, there are lots of funny bits, and I think mm. some of the interactions that you have with your brother, um, and also the imagined interactions, like she goes to visit him in the hospital, um, and the the family take turns caring for him, and she's sort of she, you, um, <laughs> is, is reluctant, uh, thinking, well, do, is it my turn to give him a bed bath? And she imagines her brother saying, stop off with the cock washing, Cathy. <laughs> and I just thought that's a totally brilliant line yeah. in the book. And there are lots of moments like yeah. that where there's a kind of, you know, it's that sort of laughter and, and tears. I really um, hope so. And um, the most joyous thing for me about writing the book was I really got him back yeah. because he was buried under those awful eight years. Um, and and I'd, I'd never had never managed to get him back again because I because it was so painful to think of it at all. I think something about actually thinking about it and writing about it has reconnected me to what he was actually like, yeah. you know. And he was just, I mean he was just so funny. And I know I always feel nervous saying this because I think I probably sound completely insane, but. I've completely connected to him, and I do sort of slightly hear him sometimes now, quite helpfully. Like, so if I'm getting in a stress about something work-related, he sort of pops into my head saying, why the fuck do you care? <laughs> and it's actually really quite good advice, you yeah. know? <laughs> but I think that, and again, I think that whole thing about being a surviving sibling is that you, I mean, I just, I had, I had to morph into this really good person. You know, yeah. I had to be a really good person for my poorly brother and for my 
terribly upset parents. But something about rediscovering Matty, I'm also slightly rediscovering like myself and kind of connecting to that. Um, actually, maybe I don't have to be like really uber good all the time. Mm. I don't know. Well, Roth, Roth says, and he's quoting Milosh when he says, when, you know, when a writer is born into a family, that family, that family dies or that family loses mm. something. And I think actually that's not true. I think you in that family have given us your brother and have mm. given him back to you and, and shared that experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful for that. So thank you, Kathy, Rents and Brent. Thank you, Kathy. And all our writers tonight, Owen Shears, Ryan Gattis, Kathy Rensley, and the Laundry and London, thank you for being here. And to Brighton Jen for the Jen. We'll see you in September. Thank you very much.